short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back, everybody, to the Cold War Show. My name is Cameron Riley, and uh, with me, as always, the man who uh, some refer to as the... Uh... Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to let everybody know that it's Cameron Riley, not Cameron O'Reilly. Um, he doesn't need the extra letter. Thank you very much. <laughs> How are you, Ray? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm really excited about uh, these shows we're going to do today and tomorrow because I think they're um, they're exciting. They're exciting. There's a lot of information here. It's, we're going to make it. We're going to try and make it interesting. Yeah. Well, I was reading through the notes, and I'm sitting there trying to count the number of idealistic cherries we're going to be popping in the next couple hours and i lost count at some point oh my god just the rain can really the cherry poppers that's us <laughs> that's the, that's the band um if people had any true sense of how things worked they would be as depressed as i was once i you know finished <laughs> reading and researching for these for this subject but but that's the way the world is and, and it's better to know it than not so in our last episodes, we talked about socialism and capitalism mm -hmm. and explained a little bit about how they work and, and, and why they are ideologically opposed to each other and some of the underlying reasons, particularly why rich people uh, would be opposed to socialism. But there was one of my favorite quotes about capitalism that I forgot to use and I kicked myself uh, afterwards. Mm. So uh, I'd like to share this just to start off this episode, um, if you would uh, allow me. Please. It's a little dense and a little dry, um, but bear with me. Right. Private capital tends to become concentrated in few hands, partly because of competition among the capitalists and partly because technological development and the increasing division of labour encourage the formation of larger units of production at the expense of smaller ones. The result of these developments is an oligarchy of private capital, the enormous power of which cannot be effectively checked even by a democratically organised political society. This is true since the members of legislative bodies are selected by political parties, largely financed or otherwise influenced by private capitalists who, for all practical purposes, separate the electorate from the legislature. The consequence is that the representatives of the people do not, in fact, sufficiently protect the interests of the underprivileged sections of the population. Moreover, under existing conditions, private capitalists inevitably 
control directly or indirectly the main sources of information, press, radio, education. It is thus extremely difficult and indeed in most cases quite impossible for the individual citizen to come to objective conclusions and to make intelligent use of his political rights. Wow. Now, who do you think said that? I would like uh, a couple of guesses. Um, It was pretty wordy, pretty brainy. I'm going to say Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. (laughs) And if that's not correct, I get one more guess. Russell Crowe in Gladiator. (laughs) Which one Uh. was that? God, I hate Russell Crowe. Um, <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, thanks. God, I hate Russell Crowe. Uh, Except... I get, I'm wrong, I guess. Romper Stomper yeah. and 310 to Yuma, which I showed Chrissy the other day. 310 mm-hmm. to Yuma, he's actually very good in that because he doesn't have much to say. Right, he just kills people. And he's ch- when he's charming, he just sort of, you know, does yeah. this cheeky smile at the camera and, you know, and it works. Yeah. Anywho... I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. You can have another guess. The right, person right. who said that was Time Magazine's Person of the Century. Of the Century. Oh, no, no, no! That doesn't sound like Forrest Gump. Mm. I don't. I don't know who was it. Actually, a quote from Albert Einstein. Get now, out of here. Being a genius in physics doesn't necessarily mean you're a genius when it comes to politics. But let's all agree that he had a really. Big brain and might have right. known a thing or two. Okay, I just thought it was yeah. interesting that his depiction is uh, that capital ends up in the hands of a few people who can then use that wealth to manipulate the media, manipulate the political process to their own benefit. Um, and that, that's essentially, I think, the the great yeah. uh, the the flaw in capitalism uh, that plays out over time that we're always fighting against. Anyway, that's just a way of kicking off the first of what will be a couple of episodes of this show where uh, I'm going to argue that the Cold War mm-hmm. was, in large part, driven by economics. Now, gotcha. I know that economics is a big, scary word for a lot of people, um, but, <laughs> but essentially... It's really just about how people make and spend money. I want to talk about the relationship between warfare and economics more broadly because economics was a huge factor. And I'm not going to, I want to make this clear up front. What I'm I'm not trying to say over these episodes is that economics is everything when it comes to war, that it's the only cause, the only factor why we go to war. I just think it is a major factor, a significant factor, and it's one that doesn't get talked about openly, plainly, and and therefore people don't tend to think of war in economic terms as much as perhaps they should. Right. Well, it's not, I mean, it's not sexy. It's not, uh, you know, there's no talk of honor or glory or valor or whatever. And so it just doesn't get the spin. But like, like I think you're like uh, Albert Einstein said, you know, they control the media. Of course, they're not going to show their hand. So, yeah, but you're right. It absolutely does not get talked about a lot. And that's just the way certain people like it. Like you pick up uh, a typical <clears throat> history of 
World War Two or World War One. I. I mean, you, you, you've done a lot of work on World War Two. Where does money come into it? How often do they talk about the economics driving World War Two? Very, very little. I was very surprised little. when I was. Yeah, when I was looking over this, it's like, you know, it's about, oh, we have to have freedom and we have to have this and our and our way of life is being threatened and this dark cover is, you know, getting all over Europe and we have to do something about it and your children can't live under this type, you know, whatever. It's, it's all just sales pitch, sales pitch, sales pitch. Obviously, Hitler had to be stopped. But if you really stop and think about it, there are massive economic components to it because how can there not be wars cost a lot of money and someone's got to pay for all this? And someone's got to be profiting from it, usually. <clears throat> you know, Bingo. it's funny. I, I, most of us totally accept that money makes the world go round. We yeah. completely understand that money drives nearly every aspect of our lives. Well, you except know, for us podcasters. We do podcasting for the glory, the chicks, and the drugs. Money, <laughs> not so much. No, no, but it's, it's all for the glory, you're right. <clears throat> exactly. Uh <laughs> So when it comes to the three major pillars of society, politics, religion, and war, people tend not to think of money as being a major factor that drives those things. And I guess what, what I've learned over the last 20 or so years as I've been reading about history is when you pick these things apart, quite often money is uh, a big factor in how those industries work. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't get talked about very often. You know, the media rarely mentions money and war together. The education system rarely mentions it. The politicians rarely mention it. Why do you think no one mentions it, Ray? Um, again, I think just part of it is because it's not it's not inspirational. I mean, you think of it, you think of a bunch of young men in uniform going off to fight for freedom and courage and to save the American way. Nobody wants to hear about money. Nobody wants to hear about what's going on behind the scenes. It's just not sellable. It's just not what we have been conditioned to think of as what is proper while you fight. Um, and plus look, look, look who owns the, uh, the media uh, corporations and the outlets and things like that until the internet came along you know, you don't hear about it, anything except for what the major brands want you to know. That is, I know that's not a very good guess, but that's pretty much all I can, uh, that I can attempt for that question. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I think it's not within the interests of the people that are profiting from war to let people know that they're profiting and how much they're profiting from wars and it also tends to be the same people or they have conjoined interests that are controlling the media and the education Mm -hmm. system and the government and so just it deliberately i think i suspect is uh marginalized now we do hear from time to time about lobbyists and we hear about campaign finance and we hear about military budgets it's not that these things are never talked about but they aren't at the centre of the conversation whenever we're talking about why we're going to war or why we're at war or why we spend so much money on war. And the, the, the money is always usually on the fringes. It's like, oh, we have to go to war for all of these reasons. And, oh, yes, we need to pay for it. And, you know, <laughs> where are we going to get the money from? Right. My, my, my argument is that Money maybe should be at the first part of that conversation. Why are we going to war? Well, it's quite often about money. And what I want to do over the next couple of episodes is is pick that apart 
and mm-hmm. look at the various different ways that various businesses and groups of people profit from going to war, profit from a war-based economy. And so we, so we really understand that because as we move forward in uh, the Cold War series, it's going to be really important to have a, a relatively good understanding about those economic drivers. But we don't want to get too boring with it, so uh, we will also tell some dick jokes and play some songs. Count on us. Count on our dicks. Yes. But see, again, it, as much as you're right, and we're going we're gonna to give you several cases to prove uh, this idea as far as money driving uh, combat and war and, and the packaging that goes along, to me, that's what makes the uh, Cold War so fascinating. Besides the tiny little, you know, America, American invasion into Russia, the Operation Polar Bear at the end of uh, World War One, the United States and the USSR did not have this long history of antagonism. But because these two countries are so different politically, there's no way they're going to be able to trust each other. Even FDR tried to build a relationship uh, with uh, Stalin and the USSR when he came to power. But because these two have different political systems and politics is all about money, let's be honest, there's no way they're going to trust each other. So even though they don't have an antagonistic history, they had a common enemy in Hitler and, and Mussolini uh, in Japan, they still could not bring themselves to trust trust each other when all the bad guys are laid low and now they're facing each other. They should have gotten along. They should have come up with some kind of agreement, but it doesn't happen. And we're about to give you many examples of why that just could not be the way it should have been. Hmm. Now, we've said many times on our other podcasts that wars are mostly fought over money, but they're packaged up for the masses as being about religion or freedom or revenge or saving the children. I vote revenge. And this is true when we're talking about wars ranging from the Crusades through to the two world wars. And, of course, through to things like the war on drugs or the war on terrorism or the war on country music. That's just (laughs) one of my private wars. Uh, (laughs) War is marketed like any other product. Now, you might think, what do you mean marketed? I don't buy a war. Oh, really? (laughs) Uh, I mean, who who do you think pays for wars? The war fairy? Look, we'll get into that. Oh, that would be convenient. A bit more later. But right now, I want to say this. If you don't think you're being marketed to, when it comes to war, you're being naive. If I can give give a quick example of that, please. I'm sorry. Um, But yeah, I mean, you can't just pick up and invade another country because you want their stuff. I mean, you have to come up with a reason, even if it's a false reason, unless you've been actually invaded. It's how how do you justify that? How does that make sense in your head that you are going to pick up, arm a whole bunch of guys on your side, go in there, cause a lot of destruction, lose a lot of your men, spend a ton of money. So unless you're actually being invaded, the idea that somebody wants to hurt you or that someone is thinking about it. I mean, you can't just justify that. So it does have to be packaged. And there was this article that I ran it when I ran across this weekend is Thomas Friedman. He's a three-time Pulitzer winning uh, journalist. And he wrote this very week that the Republican party is merely an empty shell willing to sell itself off to the highest bidders untethered from principled center-right conservatism. And he's got a point. He says, real conservatives have principles, they have ideas, and they're not afraid or ashamed to 
to say what they are and try to convince you to think like them. That's what you do. And I can accept that. I can respect that. But he's just saying that it's all about money. Everybody's just out to make a, a pile of cash and get out. And you got to know that if the Republicans are doing it, the Democrats are doing it too. That's why everybody's spinning. Everybody's lying to you. Everybody wants your vote so they can get in power because once they're in power, they can make cash. And that's the way it's been since there's been governments and businesses for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we dealt with that in the old Julius Caesar show when mm. Caesar, Caesar spent nearly a decade conquering Gaul, modern for France, cash. mostly. And glory. Yeah. Yeah. It was mostly because he had massive debts and uh, mm-hmm. he was able to profit from it. Anyway. Well, I, I want to say that just getting back to being naive, look, a good habit uh, I think to get into is to treat every single news story that you read or watch as if somebody is trying to convince you of something where they or someone else stands to benefit. Like ah. I, you know, I, I run a marketing agency, so I spend a fair amount of my time trying to figure out how to get the media to cover stories about my clients in a way mm-hmm. that doesn't look like it's a, I wrote it, a but I job. did, but I did write it. <laughs> so. Right. Marketers spend a lot of their time trying to figure out how to get the people to think the way that we want them to think about the things that we're being paid to get them to think about, but in a way that doesn't make it look like it's a marketing piece because no one wants to read, no one wants to be marketed to. So you have to package it up in different ways. You know, we should take a tip from our old mate Cicero, aka Mm. Dickero, because he was a complete (laughs) dick. Um, He once. Uh, wrote qui bono to whose profit who benefits ah um, is that Cicero, like follow the money yeah follow the money okay Cicero actually says it was a saying of Lucius Cassius Longinus Ravia who was consul in 127 BCE and quite famously prosecuted three vestal virgins for fucking around what what yeah you know, because you don't want your virgins fucking around, Ray. I mean, if it's why I've, no. t- I've been telling you this, <laughs> you do not want your virgins fucking around. Like it, it was this, bad for Rome, and it would be yeah. bad for my heart. Hey, hey, quick question: that old saying about marketing or advertising, I guess, would be more accurate to say, is that it's the truth well told. Now, I know that's an old school definition, but it seems to me like today, I mean, that doesn't even apply. Marketing is just manipulate in any way you possibly can to get someone to click here or to buy here or to look here or to think here or to or to vote a certain way. I mean, it just seems like there doesn't there doesn't seem to be any rules or limitations anymore. Not many. I mean, I think good marketing is truth right. well told. Honest okay. in, in marketing with integrity uh is that, but a lot of it's not. Gotcha. Um so if you want to listen to uh, more about Cicero and fucking around, then listen to our Caesar show. But um, anyway, yeah. I, my point is that I, I think you should learn to become a healthy skeptic when you read the news. I mean, that doesn't mean that you have to be cynical. There's a difference. Right. Cynical means you think everything is a lie. Everything is shit. Uh, you, you totally, automatically just don't believe anything that you hear and you think the whole place is um, the the every, everything that you hear is just bullshit, right? Skeptical means that you want to see sufficient supporting evidence before you believe something. 
So you'll be willing to believe it. You're open to believing what you see in the media if you're provided with you. You won't just take it. You know, you won't just believe it because it's in the paper. Right. Yeah, you, but you don't also automatically say everything is bullshit. You, you, you sit in the middle and you go, okay, well, that's possible. You know, the right. president said this, or, or or the king said that, or CEO said X or Y, or the pope. It's possible. Um, but I'm not going to buy into it and, unless I see sig- sufficient supporting evidence. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I think the world I'm, would be I'm a lot saying, better if more people were a little bit sceptical about what they see in the media. Yeah, it would certainly be a lot more healthy for them. It's like you hear jokes all the time about how skewed Fox News is. I mean, they have an agenda that, you know, they don't do a very good job of hiding it. Maybe they're not even trying to hide it. But even things like NPR, uh, any other news source that you listen to, everybody's got their own agenda and everybody tilts the news to read the way they want it to be. And again, I don't know if that's evil. I don't think of that's evil. Everybody is just trying to do a job, trying to get you to listen, trying to get you to watch. And they all have bosses and their bosses are rich and they need the media to be spun a certain way. And that's just the way it is. So a certain level of, um, you know, cynicism, if you will, just, just like like you've said this skepticism, not cynicism, skepticism. You said this a billion times, decide for yourself, think, you know, get information from both sides, decide for yourself and move on. And you'll be a lot better informed that way going forward. Mm. And it's not just the content of the stories that you need to pay attention to, like which sides of the story are being presented, which experts are they including, um, what are their financial ties to their those experts, who have they worked for, who are they consulting to, etc. Which euphemisms they choose to use in the story. Um, but it's also the selection of which stories that are covered that is part of, of the marketing, the propaganda that we're all exposed to. There are certain stories that just don't get talked about at all or don't get the coverage that they deserve in the media. It's the, the way the free media and this propaganda system that we have around us in the West works it's the not only the the way the stories are told, but it's the stories that aren't told. What are the stories right. that are deliber- deliberately not being told? If you you know if you have a way of finding those out, you can get to see some of the strings that are being pulled. But anyway, can I, can I ask a quick question, just as as a possible example of that? Um, and this is not about my politics. This is just something I saw on Facebook and stuff like that. I, I can't remember the number of times somebody would take a big a picture of uh, Bernie Sanders in an auditorium or whatever. And there's just this massive crowd, thousands and thousands of people. And, and there would always be this doesn't get reported on the news. Or, you know, and you just they were trying to build the case that he was very popular, especially with the young people. And it was being covered because the. I guess maybe the left-leaning whatever news agencies wanted Hillary to win. Did you did you ever hear anything about that, or do you think it has any credence? I, I don't think there are any left-leaning news agencies. Um, well, le- relatively left. You know, I guess what I mean is less right-leaning <laughs> instead of left-leaning. Like my, most of the big news, like I, I used to have this argument with uh, Markham all the time. He'd say, "Well, MSNBC is you know uh, the liberal media," and I like. They're owned by GE, General Electric, man. Like, they're not left-leaning. They're owned by a massive, one of the most massive corporations. They are not going to be progressive. It just, there is no reason 
why a one of the largest corporations on the world would be propagating pro- truly progressive ideas. Well, look, I haven't I haven't followed the U.S. Uh, coverage of Sanders uh, as much okay. as I would need to be able to comment on that. I do know, though, historically, Sanders has bucked this train a bit, but historically, if you go back through the last 10 or 15 years of presidential elections, there are certain presidential candidates, guys like Dennis Kucinich, that mm-hmm. tend not to get any media coverage. Uh, they, they just get shut out of the... Um, uh, the, 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 well, not just the media yeah. coverage, but also the debates and things like that. Is it uh, his haircut? I feel like it's his haircut. It could be his haircut. Yeah, it's just it's just Although, there. It's but, not. There's no style. <laughs> Sorry, but Bernie Bernie Sanders uh, surprisingly that's I think, some hair right there to everyone. Sorry. I'm sorry. Managed to get some media coverage, but if you look at right. the amount of coverage that he got, and I have seen some studies on that, versus Clinton versus Trump, and uh, you look at the temperature of that coverage, whether or not it's positive or negative overall, wow. um, I, I think the studies indicate that he has got far less than either Trump or Clinton and uh, far less positive commentary around it. Yeah. But anyway. That's what it felt like. You know, I, I want to get back to the, the, the to talking about war and economics. So war, as we'll see, is... A huge industry, and I think everybody knows that, but we don't think about it enough. Maybe in two thousand and twelve, the global, the the total global military expenditures was roughly one point eight trillion U.S. dollars. Damn, that's one year. Oh one point eight Each year. trillion dollars. Do you know what we could do to help people? Never mind. Sorry. Go ahead. Now, this is made up of lots of companies, but right. it's it's one you know, movement, if you like. One one. In, think of it as an industry sector. One point mm-hmm. eight trillion dollars a year. Now, if you think this huge industry isn't marketing itself to the people who are paying for it, <laughs> then. Really, like, wake the fuck up. I mean, of course they, it's, they are marketing to you. Now, look, in olden times, as you and I well know, and listeners to our other shows well know, you, you could motivate soldiers to fight in a war and you could gain public support for a war by saying, well, look, we're going to go and invade this or that country in order to take their money. That yeah. was acceptable. I'll back, sign up. Back in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, that was, mm-hmm. that was how you did it. Soldiers went and fought went and fought in wars for a share of the spoils, and the people uh, of say Athens or Pella or Rome knew that if the armies were successful, that uh, a lot of booty, a lot of plunder, would right. come back to the city, and they would use it to build better infrastructure and better temples and better colosseums. And throw festivals, which made everybody yeah. happy. So everyone was like, "Yeah, okay, war, sure, good. Why not?" And if you were, if you were a poor, if you were a soldier from a peasant family, right. it was a way to change your economic circumstances. Particularly, you know, if you came from uh, a lower social economic class, you could go back. We've seen this happen a lot in the Alexander and Caesar shows. They were able to go back home and they were they, they were now sort of middle or upper classes because of the money, the wealth that they brought back. If you were already nobility, it increased your wealth and privilege. 
Mm. Um, if if nothing else, it protected your wealth, if you're a member of the nobility, by going to a nearby country or tribe that might be threatening to come and take your wealth and right. launching a preemptive strike. Is that a, pre- yeah, I was gonna say a preemptive financial, economic, military raid? But yeah. Call it whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but you could be upfront about the fact that money was at the heart of mm-hmm. it, and, and they also they had other reasons. There was revenge, or there was uh, I don't know. They looked at us the wrong way. <laughs> there were, there were other, <laughs> never again. They yeah. don't worship the right gods. Um, there were other justifications, but at the end of the day, money was. Uh, they were upfront about money uh, yeah. being a, a major reason why they were going to go and t- you know fight the people next door. There so, was something you. I'm sorry. Go I ahead. apologize. Just just real quick, something you made me. Uh, something you said made me think. Yeah, they would take some of that money, and come back, and they would build temples. Oh, thank you, whatever God, for this great victory. Here's some coliseums to entertain the people. But if you think about that today, you couldn't do that today. That would be extremely tacky so now they just build memorials to the fallen so maybe they inscribe their names on and everybody comes there and they touch or whatever and they say their little prayer whatever meanwhile all the money from the war is going back to the rich guys but at least there's some nice memorials nowadays for people to go and observe and and miss their father brother you know sister whatever so even at least back then the people got something directly out of it now unless you buy stock in one of these companies all you're getting is a memorial. Yeah, imagine if, imagine if the uh, <laughs> the, pe- the Pentagon built, or, or Bush, or Cheney, or Rumsfeld, or one of these guys built like a massive sports stadium and called it the the, the Gulf, freedom the Gulf the War <laughs> the Gulf War oh Coliseum. God. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and, bitches. And the, he- <laughs> and the heads of various enemies on pikes all the way around. <laughs> Oh my God! Okay. Or actually, they're real heads. They could put, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saddam's yeah, yeah. head, Gaddafi's head. Right. Um, I was going to say that slaves were also a big part of the plunder back in the good old days. Um, you know, you could bring back the uh, conquered peoples, right? And uh, uh, and either use them for slaves for building public buildings, or, or sell them off yeah. to the wealthy. Um, but they were good. they were a benefit to the economy. Everyone thought, "Oh, that's great!" They come back with money. They also come back with slaves, and I can get one for my wife so she doesn't have to do the washing. It's awesome. Um, but so you know, and this gets back to what we were saying briefly before about Caesar and Gaul. I mean, even though Caesar had various excuses when you read his uh, Gallic commentaries about why he needed to. Conquer mm-hmm. the Gauls. Well, you know, they, they, they insulted one of our client state the ruler kings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He knew uh, exactly what he was doing when he went there. He knew. He'd already had it all worked out. He went to Gaul massively in debt and came back one of the two or three richest and most powerful men in Rome. And uh, he created a lot of millionaires. And, I mean, and, you know, he brought up a lot of men and who suddenly were very, very well off. Yeah. But he sent a lot of money back to Rome as well. Yeah. And he knows so, what he's doing. Yeah, a lot of glory uh, for him in Rome and, and uh, a lot of prestige, etc., etc. A lot of political capital he got by uh, conquering there and sending money back. Mm-hmm. But that's not how you sell a war in modern <laughs> times. It's, it's, it's no. a lot harder in our more progressive societies 
to justify military conflict by saying, hey, listen, um, uh, I want you to send your kids over to this country or go over yourself, um, put your life on the line, kill thousands of innocent people uh, so my friends and I can make some more money. Would that be okay? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you you can't do that kind of stuff. And no one wants to think that they're manipulated. Everybody's too smart to be manipulated. There's no such thing as conspiracy theories anymore. But this stuff that we're talking about, it's not crazy theories. I mean, this stuff, like you said earlier, is down to a fine science and a fine art and they've been working on it for decades i was looking up one thing as far as just buying influence in washington let's see here back in 1998 there were just over 10,000 lobbyists in dc and in 2015 there were now just over 11,000 lobbyists in dc and they spent 3.22 billion dollars last year <laughs> trying to influence um you know these senators and congressmen so how in the hell can a sen- senator or congressman possibly be expected to look after the interests of the average citizen when his or her Vote doesn't matter for shit because most of them don't vote anyway. And these people are spending just over $3 billion. I mean, that's just the way it is. And it's just all, It's just, if you have money, you have influence and you can knock on the right door and get in. And if you don't, your opinion doesn't matter shit. And you only get one vo- vote every election. So that's that's just the way it is. Yes, indeed. Now, again, <clears throat> I'm not saying that money is the only factor or the only no. reason that we go to war. No, there, but we're just focusing on it now, yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying that there are a lot of mitigating factors behind a war, but we need to understand that lots of people stand to make lots of relatively easy money during mm. wartime, and those people are going to use whatever influence they have with the government, with the media, etc., to push hard for a war because they know mm. if they can get your country into one, there's huge amount of money to be had, easy money. Gotcha. Now, back in 1935, Major General Smedley Butler, which if I ever have another son, I'm <laughs> going to name him Smedley. <laughs> You kind of want to be... Name. It's a great name for an evil villain, Schmedley. <laughs> hey, Schmed. Schmedders. Dr. Schmedley to Schmedo. you. Schmedo. Major General Schmedley... <laughs> Schmedley Butler, who at the time of his death was the most decorated Marine in US history. <clears throat> he wrote a book in 1935 called War is a Racket. <laughs> Just put it out there. Why don't you smedley? And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a very short book. Uh, it started off as a speech, I think, and turned into a book. But uh, it's brilliant and, and very insightful and very easy to read. But it, the first chapter starts like this. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope, It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. Mm. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. Now, again, this is coming from a guy who is the most decorated Marine in U.S. history at the time of his death. 
And he, he was, fought in World War One, right? Yeah, he was a hero okay, in so World War One and other wars. Okay. And he was the you know he held the highest rank then available in the U.S. Army. Damn. Uh, and in the last chapter, he talks about how the U.S. got into World War One. He says. Looking back, Woodrow Wilson was re-elected president in 1916 on a platform that he had kept us out of the war and on the implied promise that he would keep us out of war. Yet five months later, he asked Congress to declare war on Germany. In that five-month interval, the people had not been asked whether they had changed their minds. The four million (laughs) young men who put on uniforms and marched or sailed away were not asked whether they wanted to go forth to suffer and die, then what caused our government to change its mind so suddenly? Money. An an Allied commission, it may be recalled, came over shortly before the war declaration and called on the president. The president summoned a group of advisers. The head of the commission spoke. Stripped of its diplomatic language, this is what he told the president and his group. There is no use kidding ourselves any longer. The cause of the Allies is lost. We now owe you, American bankers, American munitions makers, American manufacturers, American speculators, American exporters, five or six billion dollars. If we lose, and without the help of the United States, we must lose, we, England, France and Italy, cannot pay back this money and Germany won't. So, dot, 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 dot. (laughs) So, we're off to war. Now. How many people do you think think if you ask them, well, why did America get involved in World War One? It was to say to uh, make sure that our allies could pay back the money they owed us. <laughs> Not many. They had to stop the Hun. And again, not saying it was the only factor. Right. But, right. but according to the most decorated Marine in US history who fought in World War One. You should know. He thought it was uh, the factor. He may be right, he may be wrong, but it's worth us considering uh, this, uh, this, this aspect of why countries go to war in more detail than we normally do. Let, let me ask you a quick question. So, um, and because and you know, in getting ready for the show, I was looking at the stock prices of Lockheed Martin, uh, Grumman, all those other guys. If you've been putting fifty bucks away a month, I don't know, buying stock for these guys for the last five or ten years, you know, especially since the economy has turned around, you would have made a pretty nice profit. And we've been, I guess, in war on and off, whatever, since the first Bush, as far as modern times goes. Um, I mean, is it wrong? To say, I can't change the system, so I'm just going to benefit from it and stick a little money in there as opposed to going, no, this is wrong. I'm not going to do anything, have anything to do with it. I don't want to do anything to perpetuate it, and I'm going to keep my funds out and invest other places. Do you think some people, or would you make that kind of moral decision or face the reality and try to make money? Because we all try to make money for our families and take care of our families. Would you make a moral decision if you had extra money to invest. I know you don't because you're a podcaster, but um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, do you see what I'm saying? Like what, that, that's a pretty tough dilemma. It's like, I know this is wrong, but I can make money because there's always going to be some kind of war with, since we fucked up the Middle East so bad, there's always going to be something going on. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a very, very good question. Raymondo. I look, yeah. I do personally try and live by a code where I try mm-hmm. to be uh, as ethical as possible with how I 
earn a living, you know, despite the right. fact that I'm in marketing. You know, I, I, <laughs> I try and steer, steer clear of clients and projects where I feel uh, in order to do a good job, I would have to be unethical. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, it's not about money for me. Like, yeah. I was just talking to an Uber driver about this yesterday. I had a young Uber driver, 25-year-old uh, Chinese guy. And uh, we got talking, and uh, and and I said, "Yeah, well, what do you do?" And he told me he was also in real estate. And I said, Are "You married?" He said, "I've got a girlfriend, but I don't spend much time with her because, you know, I think right now this time of my life is just to work. I got to work really hard and yeah. set myself up." And uh, I reminded him that every study you ever see of what people say on their deathbed, yes. Yes. Everyone, people say, if I had my time over again, I would have spent less time at the office and right. more time with my family, my friends, experiencing the world, looking at sunsets, sniffing roses, walking along the beach, and, um, and fucking, basically. Uh, these... <laughs> And we know yeah, that. Yeah. Everyone knows yeah. that. Everyone we, knows that's what people say on their deathbeds. And yet... But we don't do it. But we don't do it, no. So I, I think... Yeah. And he said to me, oh, well, and we got talking about... I said, you have to have a philosophical, philosophical framework and being happy mm -hmm. is important to most people. So I think you should focus most of your energy on figuring out what it's going to take for you to be happy and have a fulfilling right. life. And then when you've worked that out, then go and work out how to make money. Most people... He goes, oh, I'm going to yeah, make the yeah. money first and then... I'll, I'll, I'll work out how to be happy. It's like no, 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 no. Yeah. You've got or to worse, ask backwards. or worse, the money will make me happy. Yeah, then, then you're really down in a, in a vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah. we got talked about consumerism and the marketing of consumerism and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, no, I think part of having a code for how you live your life is about. Okay. Not doing anything um, unethical. I used to struggle with that when I worked at Microsoft. Quite honestly, I used to struggle yeah. with the fact that. I felt that what I was doing wasn't really uh, adding value to society. Not to say it was mm -hmm. completely unethical. Um, you know, we weren't having people killed, but um, well, that was a different branch. Not often, Dif but yeah, no, different department. No, so I don't know, man. I, I don't think I could do that uh, willingly or deliberately. I would find that. Mm -hmm. But then it's hard. Like then, then I've been working on this in in this book I've been working on. Then, you know, I buy an iPhone and I know iPhones get made for Apple at Foxconn and Foxconn treats its uh, employees basically as uh, slave labor. Uh, so should I not buy iPhones? But then that's the same is true with every computer and every piece of technology and yeah. every phone that's made. They're all made under slave labor in China. So then I have to say, okay, well, no technology. Well, where does that leave my ability to earn an income? Because I don't have any other skills right. other than typing yeah. things on computers and talking yeah. into microphones. I can't go and... <laughs> All principles, no money. Yeah, no, it's, it's, hmm. you got to balance it out. Yeah. Well, anyway, that could be a whole episode, man, or four. Yeah. Okay, so we get deep there. So okay. Yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> if you want to send people off to war in modern times, you need to manipulate them and the public in general into believing that they are doing it either for self-defense mm -hmm. oh if we don't do it they're gonna shoot weapons of mass destruction at us right. or you're doing it for altruistic reasons well we're going over to stop this guy from hurting these other people wow. um and you know Pac we haven't done yet 
packaging up ideas to sell them to the masses has become a fine art uh, in the last hundred or so years. Mm-hmm. The founder of modern propaganda, Edward Bernays, who was a, who was a nephew of Sigmund Freud, the guy mm. who invented psychiatry, nice. wrote a book in 1928 called Propaganda. Again, I highly recommend it. Um, the opening of the book is this. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Clearly, it is the intelligent minorities which need to make use of propaganda continuously and systematically. In the act of proselytizing minorities in whom selfish interests and public interests coincide, lie the progress and development of America. Only through the active energy of the intelligent few can the public at large become aware of and act upon new ideas? Damn. So between these three quotes that you've given in this episode so far, I'm starting to feel like nothing more than one of the cattle. Yeah, the cattle. Now, Edward Bernays is considered um, not only the founder of modern propaganda, but the founder of the public relations industry. And um, mm. he actually did a lot of work uh, early on in the, in the 20s and 30s to manipulate uh, people into believing certain things, including he was part of the committee to convince people to get involved, I think, in World War One, as was mm. Walter Lippmann, who I'll get to in a second. But you see, from that, it, it's the job of the intelligent few, according to Bernays, to manipulate the dumb, dirty masses <laughs> into thinking how they're supposed to think. That's me. No, no, that's why I was going to say that's why you and I produce our podcasts for the dirty masses <laughs> to right. teach them how to think rightly. We are giving them showers, golden showers, if you will, <laughs> to cleanse themselves from be- no longer being the dirty masses. Cleanse yourself through our podcast. <laughs> Uh, you're welcome, dirty masses. <laughs> we are here to give you golden showers. <laughs> anyway. Now, convincing the people to think in a certain way is sometimes referred to manufacturing consent. You want to manufacture the consent of the people. Um, people may think that's a term that Noam Chomsky coined here in the late 80s here and a guy called... Edward Herman wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent, which is all about how the media does this. But it actually comes from uh, a book written in 1922 called Public Opinion by the guy I mentioned before, Walter Lippmann. Mm. Uh, In that book, he said that the general public functioned as a bewildered herd who must be governed by a specialized class. The urk, jeez. Now, these books uh, I mentioned, Propaganda and Public Opinion, are very well known by people who work in public relations, who who Mm -hmm. work in public policy. These are the foundational 20th century documents 
on how to get the masses to go along with what it is you want to convince them of. And there's an entire industry been built up around coercing the, the public, not just in terms of corporate PR and, and politics, but government, political parties do this, uh, government departments do this. You know, Think back to the last Gulf War and the embedded journalists that went over to Iraq and Afghanistan with the U.S. military who were you know, shown certain things and told, briefed in certain ways and told, given literally given media packages to take back home and uh, make it look like it was their own journalism. Uh, and this started... In the uh, first Gulf War, too, um, a guy called Roger Ailes, who people may know as being the uh, guy who runs Fox News these days, Rupert Murdoch, uh, 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 gave him the job when he launched Fox News. Actually, actually Fox News was Roger Ailes' idea. Mm. But I remember Roger Ailes was, I think it was in Gulf War One. He had this great idea of sending out daily video releases to the news networks of the uh, great and glorious success of the American Empire in Gulf War One. Video of you know rockets being launched and right. soldiers doing soldiery things and uh, the Iraqi people or the Kuwaiti people uh, probably in Gulf War One hailing them as uh, conquering uh. heroes. They would send out <coughs> daily releases of videos on like VHS or Betacam to all of the news networks. And mm-hmm. the news networks would run it like it was news footage, but it had all been packaged up by the, uh, I think he was working for the uh, Bush One administration or the Republican uh, sh- strategic PR or something at that time. Anyway. I'm off. I'm off in the in the weeds there. So, getting back to Walter Lippmann, uh, interesting guy. Uh, he's known as the father of modern journalism. He won two Pulitzer prizes in his lifetime. Wow. He's also famous for being one of the first people to introduce the term and the concept of the Cold War. He wrote a uh. book of that name in 1947. He also coined the term stereotype hmm. uh, and used it when sort of critiquing media and democracy. LBJ awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Wow. So, uh, you know, he's not a, not a nobody. And again, he was one of these guys who pushed the idea that the uh, general public was a bewildered herd who must be governed by a specialised class. And this this is how a lot of policymakers, uh, not just in the United States but around the world, mm-hmm. think of the general masses. It's, it's their job as the specialised class to convince the general public of what it is they want them convinced of because the people, and rightly so to a point, I mean, people are too busy to go and read everything that they need to read, study up on every issue. Somebody needs to tell them what to think and what to believe. But as you said before, people don't like to think that they are being spun. They like to think that they're intelligent. I suggested to uh, one of my brother-in-laws, one of Chrissy's brothers in America, (laughs) The first time I met them, 
that uh, Americans had all been, you know, they believed what they believed because of the propaganda that they had been taught their entire mm. lives. This guy's a lawyer, and uh, he got he got really, really, really cranky, <laughs> really angry, flared up at the suggestion. <laughs> How dare you, sir? Oh, oh it's Southern. Mm. Sorry. And, but that's part of the propaganda. Part of the propaganda is believing that you don't have any propaganda. Right. Mm. Um, so, look, there are lots of ways that companies profit out of war, and I want to look at some of the big ones. Um, we're running out of time on this episode, so we'll probably cover most of them in the next one. But first, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the concept of imperialism. Oh, please. That's a word that doesn't get used in polite society much these days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, what would you? What would your definition of imperialism be if you needed to pull one out of your imperialism? Uh, yeah, that's. Um, I don't know how. Again, you're trying to use the the proper language. Um, projecting your power, uh, being able to go to other places that do not belong to you, take their resources, control their resources, control the people, manipulate governments. Uh, basically, it's almost like dignitas, but for a country instead of a person. Well, you we just go over there, and, yeah, and you get create markets. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I mean, the word imperialism comes from imperium from ancient Rome. Oh, so I was semi on track. Yeah, but basically, you just go over there and you set up shop in someone else's yard, and you create markets, and you use their resources, and you use their labor, and fuck them. Well, what what does the word imperium? What did it mean in ancient Rome? Oh, when you had imperium, that means that you, that was the power of a position in office and you could not be touched. You could not be prosecuted. No one was allowed to do anything until your term in office was over and you laid down your imperialism, imperialism, which is why these guys tried so hard to go from one office or one position to the next. So they never had to lay down their imperium and they could not be prosecuted on a trumped up charge in the courts. Trumped up. Yeah, nice. No, they were always guilty, but I, w- Trump, I was just trying to be nice. Trump, Trump, Trump. Trump sorry, Trump, yeah. no, that was a slight in me. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. You could, yeah. they could not be touched. I would have abbreviated all of that by saying Imperium was the power to command. Oh, I like mine better. But go ahead. Uh, so, modern imperialism, uh, and we touched on this back in an earlier episode when FDR was talking to Churchill, but it was the. It, the, the, the purpose of modern imperialism was to get political control, political control of all of the so-called backward countries, mm. the undeveloped countries. Like now, where I live. <laughs> now, imperialist governments wanted to secure for their respective capitalists the industrial enterprises that those capitalists wanted to establish in these so-called backward countries. Mm-hmm. Now, why did they want to do that? Why did they want to set up businesses in India or Africa or Asia or Latin American countries? Yeah. Well, you know, undeveloped markets offer corporations a lot of benefits, even today, uh, and particularly today, in fact. They offer them access to new resources, like natural resources, minerals, etc., that haven't been uh, fully tapped into, oil, etc. But they mm-hmm. also offer them low wages, low taxes, uh, weak labor unions, non-existent occupational and environmental protections. Jeez. You know, we let's you know we know that, for example, if you compare the 
Um, even though I know labor unions aren't exactly having their greatest day in Australia or the United States at the moment. They've been mm-hmm. significantly weakened since the 80s. But if you look at the, the regulations that we have in our countries for how, you, you know, how, how much you have to pay someone, how you have to treat them, the health care right. they have to be provided with, etc. And then you look at, let's say, China. We know that the, 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 you know, the, the, the regulations and the protections for the workers in China, despite the fact that it's supposedly a communist country that's all about the workers, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't they're, they're not really comparable. So uh, if businesses can do a lot of their business over somewhere like that, it, able, it enables them to reduce their production costs and, and thereby increase profits. Mm. So businesses, and this has been true for a long time, not necessarily you know the regulatory thing because that's relatively new. We only have right. had these sort of worker protections since sort of post World War II, really. But um, you know there were a whole bunch of other reasons why businesses have always wanted to get into these markets, and getting access to these foreign markets doesn't always come easily. You know the people who run the businesses and all the governments in these so-called backward countries that uh, you might want to enter might want to keep you out. Oh. Because you're a threat, a threat to their status quo or their own profiteering. They don't, they don't want you to come and start messing yeah. with how they do things because the ruling elite in that country like the way things are. They're making, they're making money. They're living a good life. They're, they're um, at the top, of the top of the dung heap. <laughs> and they don't. Sure we're going to go with food chain, but that's fine. They don't want to let you in, right? So right. historically, the role of um, imperialism was to create the necessary conditions to allow businesses, capitalists, uh, to get access to these countries' resources and people, and to be able to set up shop there, and to remove any hurdles that that might exist. Is that a euphemism? Hurdles? Yes. Okay, just checking. So, you know, quite often it was, um, if you were a business person and let's say you wanted to uh, uh, set up shop in some part of Asia mm-hmm. and uh, the, the government there said, no, fuck off, we don't want you, <laughs> you uh, said, oh, sorry, I, I forgot something, I'll be right back, and you come back with an army <laughs> and you go, see these guys? So... so Here's how it yeah, works. Come in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, they got very good at this. And yeah, I mean, the British, uh, you know, ran their dominions like this for uh, centuries. Yeah. First, you send in your navy or, or your army on some pretext to um, pacify the barbarians. Mm-hmm. Then, once they're suitably pacified, your right. corporations can go in and air quote, negotiate right. rights to their natural resources. Well, we want, a 99, we want a 99-year lease on your oil fields or right. your gold Standard. or your coal or whatever it was. Right. Um, and they, the, the businesses can negotiate that because they're confident that they've got this big fucking army just down the road <laughs> in case the barbarians forget their manners. <laughs> Don't make me blow a whistle and yeah, yeah. And quite often back in the good old days you would you would put up the British flag or the French flag or the Spanish flag or the Portuguese flag and say, Well, this is all our land now. 
You right. are you are all now our vassals. This Congratulations. is yeah. This is now part of our empire, and we're going to take all your shit. Um, <clears throat> and everyone, I mean, this isn't news to anyone, right? We all know that right. this is the way that empires were built in the 16th, 17th, yeah. 18th, and 19th centuries. It's good to be the king. Yeah. But, yeah. of course, it, 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 usually it wasn't described in that way. Well, the reason we're conquering this country is so yeah, our businesses can go in and take their shit um, <laughs> and get cheap sources of slave labour, etc., etc. And empires, you know, by the 19th century were called commonwealths and colonies were called territories or dominions it gets sanitized mm. right um, military yeah. interventions became matters of national defense or national security or maintaining stability again it, yeah. these things need to be sanitized so they become palatable to the general public yeah especially in america post 2001 i mean you say national security stability whatever and we're automatically thinking Boom. I'm already threatened, um, you know, even though there hasn't been an attack over here as far as from outside, you know, quite some time. But it, but it maintains that us versus them mentality. We have to win whatever we whatever our government has to do. I give you a blank check, take away my rights, tap into my phone. But it makes us fearful. And when anybody is fearful, they are willing to go to extremes in order to protect themselves. And they they it gets treated like a zero sum game. But it's not. I mean, but again, it's words like, and they, like you said, they know what they're doing. They're packaging this up. This kind of stuff makes you feel threatened, and then your government can pretty much do whatever they want with you. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, they become like um, Pavlov's dog. They're dog, right. dog whistle terms, right? You say national security, and people go, oh, okay, shit, sorry uh, about your business. You do what you want. Yeah. They have to package it up to make it palatable to the masses because it's distasteful to say, yeah. well, we're going to go and invade this country so we can take their oil or mm. so we can get a cheap source of labour. And, in fact, the model <clears throat> moved over time, um, but it's still imperialism, but it went from, well, we don't actually... They figured out, well, we don't actually need to take them over and plant the flag and say you're now part of the empire. We just right. need to... That's messy. That's it messy. is. Yeah, and then you've got to govern them and, and all that yeah. kind of shit. Who wants that? And it, it looks bad because because we're criticising these guys over here for building an empire. <laughs> but while we're, doing- <laughs> we're saying, hey, Stalin, no. The, you can't the go and take over it, that country. And he goes, but oh, and you've got not- these countries. They go, well, shh, no, fuck, shh, shh. <laughs> but we're, so, we're good to our peoples. So what happened is this imperialism evolved over time to where you wouldn't invade and put up the flag. You would just coerce them into oh, giving you what you wanted. You don't nice actually word. send your army in. You just post them nearby. <laughs> right? Hello. Hello. Over <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <clears throat> this has actually got a term. It used to be called gunboat diplomacy. This is where you have your navy just off the coast. <laughs> So they're just over the horizon. Where it's not. Hello. <laughs> you can't see them from the shore, right? But you know they're they're there, so they can, can be. They tell you they're there. Yeah, and they can be here in uh, twenty four <laughs> hours if if I need them, right? <laughs> so that that was how it was done, and then it evolved again in the sort of 
early part of the 20th century under Teddy Roosevelt, where it became known as big stick diplomacy. Yeah, it did. He actually tried to call it something else, but the newspapers had to clean it up. Yeah, big swinging dick diplomacy is what he tried. (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt's foreign policy was speak softly and carry a big stick. (laughs) Now... This was this was to enforce the Monroe Doctrine throughout Latin America. Now, do you know what the Monroe Doctrine is, Ray? I'm guessing it was Fred Monroe. No, it was uh, President Monroe. I guess uh, pretty much that everything as far as Latin America, North America, I guess Latin America, was pretty much within the sphere of influence of the good old U.S. of fucking A, and no one else was allowed around here. This was ours to look after and protect because God wanted us to. I'm that's me summing that up off no, the cuff. It was really this. Happy birthday to you. Oh yeah. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to you. Sorry, I just have to get some tissues. Uh. <laughs> wow. Imagine being Jackie Kennedy sitting yeah, there sitting no, while Marilyn mm-mm. vocally fucks your husband in public. <laughs> in front of the... I mean, Hillary didn't actually have to sit in the Oval no, Office and talk and to Monica. Or should Monica couldn't have talked. Watch but, um, Bill stick a cigar up Monica's <laughs> pussy. Or did she? I don't, we will never very close. know. It's possible. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. no, you're right. The Monroe Doctrine was U.S. foreign policy uh, regarding the domination of the Americas in 1823. So... It, basically, what was happening is that the uh, Spanish and the Portuguese were getting the fuck out of their Latin American colonies for a variety mm. of reasons. So these former uh, Spanish and Portuguese colonies were at the point of gaining their independence. And the U.S. stated under President Monroe, as you said, that uh, if that further efforts on behalf of European nations to colonize or interfere with the states in North and South America would be viewed of acts of aggression and would require mm. U.S. intervention. Snap. Uh, and the U.S. didn't want them to fall back under European control because they wanted right. to exert their own influence undisturbed in the Western Hemisphere. And, Quick question. Yeah. Wouldn't it, you, you would think that America, to a certain degree... United States would be okay if those countries became independent because they would not then fall back under Europe. But I'm getting the sense where you're going that that wasn't quite good enough for the Americans at the time. Well, the Americans just wanted the ability to trade freely with this part. Uh, as long as they the get world, access, okay, yeah, to what All they right. want. And as we saw uh, briefly in the previous uh, episodes, uh, these empires tended to create protectionist policies and trading blocks throughout their empire. So it was very Mm -hmm. difficult for the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries, early 20th centuries, to be able to trade with these uh, old European colonial empires without facing fairly hefty penalties in the forms of tariffs and other protectionist Ah. uh, uh, mechanisms. So, you know, obviously Latin American and other North American, i.e. Canada countries were 
the easiest for the fledgling United States to trade with because they were next door and they didn't want any European countries coming in going, sorry, you can't sell your shit here and you can't buy your shit here because all, all of the resources and all of the trade is going back to the, the good old country. But, of course, you know, the US, uh, you know, this wasn't, um, this wasn't an altruistic thing. And the Monroe mm. Doctrine formed the backbone of US foreign policy pretty much ever since, um, and it spread way beyond the Americas. Uh, and in fact, you could argue that U.S. participation in World War One, World War Two, and the Cold War mm-hmm. was, in large part, aimed at preventing any kind of regional hegemon from right. emerging in Europe and Asia. Uh, you know, yeah. the 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 rationale is that if there's another regional hegemon in one of these regions. They will have the power uh, to challenge U.S. hegemony over the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this has long been uh, particularly British policy in Europe going way back to, like, the wars of Napoleon and before to c- try and keep any major power from arising in Europe. Right. If you can keep... It's it's divide and conquer basically. If you can keep Europe as a range of uh, states that are fighting each other, then they're not going to have the power to mount any sort of serious challenge on right. your interests beyond. Yeah, they're certainly not going to gang up and and attack you because you're you're keeping them separated, divided, and not trusting each other. And Britain did that did that brilliantly for hundreds of years. And it's one of the main reasons the US has militarily supported Israel since mm. uh, the creation of Israel in the late 40s. Keeping Israel <laughs> stuck in the middle of the Middle East uh keeps all of these uh Middle Eastern countries uh incensed and irate and fighting Israel and fighting themselves, and they, it yeah. stops that whole region from unifying. Anywho, did you hear what, did, I just have to throw this out real quick. I apologize. Did you a couple of months ago? Ben Carson was talking about Israel, and he says, "Couldn't we just, couldn't we just move it down south a little bit closer to Egypt?" And the newscaster just looked at him like, "I got nothing. I don't, I don't know what to say to that." I get, anyway, I just had to throw that out. <laughs> He was laughing yeah. at him. Chris Matthews. Hardball was laughing at him. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, the Yeah, yeah, okay. That's the Monroe Doctrine. Anyway, let's move on. So later on, the big stick strategy was partially superseded by what became known as dollar diplomacy. Um, the, you're replacing the, the threat of the big stick with the uh, juicy carrot if you like, of American private investment. That sounds better. Mm, Yeah. So this tactic, dollar diplomacy basically says, look, open your borders to our corporations and we'll sink lots of money into your country, build your infrastructure, etc. So uh, give us access to what we want and we will throw lots of money at you to to do all of these public infrastructure works. And of course, that makes you look good as the as the president or the prime minister of your country, all of a sudden you're, mm-hmm. you're building new hospitals and, and you're building new schools and you're building roads. You'll be popular. You'll probably get reelected. But yeah. out in the back rooms, what's actually going to be happening is our corporations <laughs> are going to be raping your uh, country's uh, future by right. 
paying you cents on the dollar for your natural resources. Oh, that's because it sounded good for a while, though. You had me sold until you mm. mentioned the backroom action. And it's not always as uh, nasty as, as I'm portraying, but there are lots right, of nasty examples. Yeah. Um, you know, American banks, the way big dollar diplomacy works is that American uh, banks would loan money to foreign mm-hmm. governments in return for preferable treatment for U.S. corporations and for keeping out non-U.S. corporations. Brilliant. Mm. That is brilliant. Yeah. And you've always got the big stick of military <laughs> intervention. Just in case. Just in case things don't work out. You know, quite often, anyone who's done any reading of the late 20th century history of the United States uh, knows that governments have quite often been directly or indirectly toppled by U.S.-supported coups if they uh, get in the way or if they say no to American interests, uh, and then they're replaced with dictators or presidents who are willing to cut a deal. We'll uh, we'll talk a bit. We'll talk about one of those um, shortly, and uh, we'll talk about a lot more over the course of this series. And again, if people don't, if 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 you don't, still don't believe that America has overthrown countries in the last fifty, sixty, seventy years, go mm-hmm. pick up Tim Weiner's book, uh, Legacy of Ashes: His History of the CIA, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist. Uh, every source in his book, which is a very large book. Uh, it's about ten years old now. Uh, is on the record. It's it's wow. on, on the record interviews with former CIA directors, operatives, uh, and uh, it's all. There's no anonymous. There's no hidden secret stuff. It's all. Yep. This is yeah. this is the official. This is officially what the CIA did. Anyway, I want I want to quote from a book. We're running way over time here, but I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have to find a point to wrap it up. Actually, yeah. we can wrap it up uh, now. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, but I, I just have to say something real quick as a loyal American. I just want to say something. You know, all the stuff that Cam's talking about, that we're talking about, yes, it's true. You don't want to know it. You don't want to hear about it, but it's true. Um, if it helps at all, take some of the sting out. A lot of the stuff that was going on during the Cold War, these people, these politicians, these businessmen, whatever, thought they were doing Obviously, they were trying to make money. Who doesn't? But they thought they were doing the right thing to help, you know, keep uh, victory possible in the Cold War. Get as many people on your side, even if you have to threaten them as opposed to bribing them. They were doing what they thought they needed to do, but they still did a lot of horrific things. A lot of people got hurt. A lot of people got manipulated. A lot of people lost their freedom or their rights or whatever. Everybody was doing it. It doesn't make it right. Um, But it's, it's just better just to go, you know what? Yeah. My my country did this, and we did a lot of things, and hopefully we'll learn from it and not keep repeating the same mistakes. And, and just man up and, and, and just be honest with yourself. Because other than that, you're just going to be one of these idiots who shouts anybody down when you are when you tell them you want to vote for Trump and they try to give you a logical argument. You just say, la, 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 la. You know, don't be one of those. Just just man up and read some of these books and, and live with the reality because that's, that's just the way it is. Yeah, look, whatever you do, don't believe any of this stuff because we're telling we're saying yeah. it happened as I said I it before be, be skeptical about <laughs> yeah, us please. too but go out and, and read and study and try and get the facts I, I want to I'll finish up with a quote from a, another book that I recommend people read um, came out in 2004 by a guy called John Perkins it's called Confessions of an Economic Hitman oh god now Perkins uh, worked for many years as an uh, well, for an engineering consulting firm called Chas T. Main in Boston. 
That doesn't sound bad. <clears throat> he claimed his role at Maine was to convince leaders of underdeveloped countries to accept substantial development loans for large construction mm-hmm. and engineering projects while making sure that these projects were contracted to U.S. companies. That's not too bad. So um, here's a section from uh, the first chapter of his book that explains how this works. This is what we EHMs do best. EHM, of course, being an economic hitman. We build a global empire. We are an elite group of men and women who utilize international financial organizations to foment conditions that make other nations subservient to the corporatocracy running our biggest corporations, our government, and our banks. Like our counterparts in the mafia, EHMs provide favors. These take the form of loans to develop infrastructure, electric generating plants, highways, ports, airports, or industrial parks. A condition of such loans is that engineering and construction companies from our own country must build all these projects. In essence, most of the money never leaves the United States. It is simply transferred from banking offices in Washington to engineering offices in New York, Houston, or San Francisco. Despite the fact that the money is returned almost immediately to corporations that are members of the corporatocracy, the creditor in brackets, the recipient country is required to pay it all back, principal plus interest. If an EHM is completely successful, the loans are so large that the debtor is forced to default on its payments after a few years. When this happens, then, like the mafia, we demand our pound of flesh. This often includes one or more of the following, control over United Nations votes, the installation of military bases, or access to precious resources such as oil or the Panama Canal. Of course, the debtor still owes us the money, and another country is added to our global empire. God damn. Oh my God, that's rape in every way possible except for physical. But that, my friends, is dollar diplomacy backed up with big stick Damn. diplomacy. You don't have to go and invade countries. You, know, we, 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 you, you could. Know. You don't have to. I know in a couple of times in the Caesar show when we've had guests on authors, etc., and um, the question comes up as to where is America an empire? And they say, right. well, it's not. Not in the classic format of an empire, you know. Right. It's not the classic form of an empire. It's a lot more sophisticated with the mechanisms yeah. of how you get control of these countries. Plumes you, in our helmets. Yeah, yeah, sorry. You don't, no longer these days do you get control of countries by sending in armies, except as a last resort. Right. You do it through dollar diplomacy. And uh, when that stops working, if it's a big enough target for you, they've got, you know, shit that you want resources or money, then you manufacture a reason to send in an army. Uh, Ideally, you send in someone else's army first. Um, (laughs) In the the United States case, you send in Israel uh, or somebody like that to do it, or Saudi Arabia, one of your client states. Mm -hmm. But if all else fails, you send in your own. And these days, usually the US, that's sending in private corporations uh, like... um, right. Black, black water, or black whatever water, it used to be called XC. Yeah. I can't remember what they're called now. Mm. Um, anyway, um, I think we'll wrap this episode up here because we're like one twenty, 
And uh, we will start off the next episode by talking about that time the United States overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953. We had our reasons. No, we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, before we go, Mm -hmm. I I want to thank our new subscribers, our new heroes, and read a review. Yeah. So, wow, it's been a couple of weeks since we've recorded, and uh, here are the new heroes. DEFCON 1 new heroes, Donald Buchanan, Muir Anderson, Steinus von Beckman, I think that's a fake name, but it's awesome, Andrew Mentz, Kieran Bailey, Lucas Gendron, Vicky Ficklin, Brooks Gifford, Chris Zalek, Clive Patterson, Henrik Tomp, Bradley McLean, Michael Plante, John Gelhausen, David Mills, Randy Chapman, Simon Connell, Tomek Svigut, Christian Fossum, Bruce Hislop, Dan Reynolds, Darren Bostock, Chris Burke, Jeff Strankowski, Stephen Court, Prem Sharma, Mike Jones, Jonathan Sanders, Jason Carter, Lee McKnight, Jacopo Novelli, Daniel Clampett, Nathan Martin, CJ Smith, Julian Pierce, Leo Frank, Paddy Beer, Jordan Martin, Kenny Graham, John Brig, Wes Bailey, Johan van Rensburg, Kia Kibal, Christopher Gatton, Timothy Sanders, Apollo Lemon. I like that. <laughs> Adam Williams, John Talbot, Raniel Bankig, Drun Lovers, Jason Morell, Dale Lawson, Matt Connolly, Marshall Miller, Philip Major, Mark Cox, Earl Broussard, Carl Liljevist. Uh, Matthias Hansen, Soren Vang, Pete W, Michael Way, Josh Crusell, Michael Clark, Trevor Tuck, Sam Scott, Jacob Mason, Stephen Reed, Alex Hartnett, James Toole, Amber Hutchinson, Ivan Burati, Glenn Delk, Matthew Follett, Cody Sharman, Derek Gross, Marcel Jan Krigsman, Chris Barlow, Christos Kakras, Andrew McDonough, Bob Compare, Amanda Kipax. Stephen Cartoonan, Jonathan DeBeer, Mark Barrett, Tim Burlingham, Florence Bullock. Oh, shit, I'm running out of energy here. Marcus Booth, <laughs> Brendan Freeston, Sean Maguire, Mark Scott, Robin Ball, Andy Dryden, Patrick Deans, Craig Karpinski, Bruce Howie, David Murray, Anthony Watkin, Tom Stoffer, Matthew Hoff, Mark Nelson, Eric Davis, Scott Spear, James L., Kjetil Huns, Curtis Jensen, Howard Greeson, Ben Martin, John Loder, Josh Owen, Andrew Rosano, Michael Heaney, John Fork, Jeff Miller, Joe Repka, John Hikes, and Dick Newman. Wow. And Crispy Bacon. <laughs> I know, I just thought, I thought you said that. They're our new DEFCON 1 heroes. Thank you Thank so you. much, Woo! everybody. Our new DEFCON 2 heroes. Oh, breathe through your nose while you're using your mouth. Michael Freira, Stephen Lynch, Mikhail Novikov, Ken Dubuk, Deanne Moyle, Eduard Sidilnikov, and Gary Ranches and Laurel Carr. Thank you, DEFCON 2ers. Thank you very much. Uh, there's a new reward for DEFCON 2 people. I can't remember what it is, but uh, check it out on our registration site and hit us up for it. I think it's... Yeah. Uh, a photo of Ray naked lying on a yeah, that sounds about right sofa. Um, <laughs> DefCon three now DefCon three subscribers get to do a private one on one Skype call with us mm-hmm. for half an hour or so. We will chat to you, answer any Looking of your questions, just chat yep. it up. 
did one the other day with uh, Sean Fisher. Uh, you didn't turn up because you were watching midget porn or something, but uh, was... <laughs> but uh, he and I had a great chat. And his <laughs> his room, one of his housemates, this guy that looked like a cross between Jesus and Thor, is walking <laughs> around completely stark as naked while we're on the call. Comes down to the camera, and goes hi. His cock is flopping about. Well, built, you know, well built. Going, oh, hi. If I looked like a combination between Jesus and Thor, I'd walk around naked. Exactly too. right. I'd be too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. Hey, it's me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, a new DefCon 3 subscriber since last time. Simon Vesey, Michael Swenson, Dario Iannero, Liam Bustle, uh, Sean Fisher, Peter Findlay, and Darren Giddens. So seriously, nice. guys, if you want to take us up on our offer of having it, if, why the fuck would I want to talk to you guys? But if you do... Uh, just yep. shoot us an email. And I want to read mm-hmm. a review before we go. God damn it. Um, better Than <laughs> Things That Aren't As Good by Jamison O'Toole from the USA. Again, I suspect that is a fake name. Uh, yeah, my apologies, yes. Jamison, if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It sounds like like the fake Irish name you would make up if you wanted to make up a fake one. Oh, Jamison O'Toole, to be sure, to be sure. Kiss the Blarney Stone. He says, I was very excited when I heard the Aussie from the Napoleon series and Frodo from the World War II podcast were getting together. Mr. Frodo. And not, that's how I was getting introduced you at the beginning of the show. Uh, the man that they say is Frodo, but uh, I, then you, I lost my train nice. of thought. We're yeah. getting together and not in the biblical sense, but that too. Love the Caesar podcast and couldn't wait for the Cold War series. It's good. No, really, it is. One is outlandish and vulgar, and the other is, well, he might be reading a book or playing Angry Birds during some of the show, but that's okay. They're like mixing narcolepsy and epilepsy, but the result is so entertaining and at the same time informative, worth the time and worth the cash. So nice. thank you, uh, Jamison O'Toole. Send us an email, email at the Cold War. No, email at a Cold War. Yeah, a Cold dot, War. Because the Cold War was taken. And so was coldwar.com. Taken. It's okay. A Cold, email at a Cold War.com with your address and your real name. And we real will name. send you a thank you token of our appreciation for going mm-hmm. to the effort of writing a review. If you want to write a review, if you want to get a, a free coffee mug, uh, go up to iTunes and uh, leave us a review. And we will pick the best ones. So put some effort into it. Unlike the amount that Ray puts into the show. Exactly. Uh, That is the end of this episode, nine, and we will be back soon with episode 10 and also coming Mm -hmm. up soon. uh, This weekend, in fact, Ray and I will be doing our interview with the Secretary of State of Wisconsin, Doug LaFollette. So that will be out in the feed soon too. Hang out for that. Looking forward to it. See you, Ray. Ciao. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.